you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to go to Romans chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible there, um, there should be one in the seat in front of you, um, underneath the little rack there. Uh, we're going to dive into our cult series tonight, uh, beginning with Mormonism, and then next week um, we're going to take on the issue of Jehovah's Witness. So just want to kind of chart a little bit in front of you each and every week where we'll be going and what we'll be doing. So tonight we're going to look, though, at the book of Romans, start there, and we're going to make our way um, around uh, the scriptures tonight as we uh, kind of compare the two. So if you have your Bibles open uh, go and you're there in Romans chapter 3, if you'd stand with me as we pay honor to the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse number 21. This is the word of the Lord. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." That's been the reading of God's word, and may we never take it for granted that we hold a copy of God's word in our hands. We're able to do this together. Let's pray together this evening. Father, we come before you tonight, and we just humbly ask that you would help us as we endeavor to compare uh, different cults and world religions with the God of the Bible. And God, I ask that you would help me uh, to recall what I've studied to be clear and charitable. We don't want to misrepresent anyone in this series, Father, and we want to separate light from darkness, but the only way we can do that is with your word and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're asking that you would help us in the moments to come that we might see things clearly as they are. And Father, tonight we know that there are hundreds of churches around our state around our country that will be opening the word. But we also know that there are churches in our city that will be gathering together. Think of our friends at Park Crest Baptist Church and the college ministry there. Think of Paul Ebert as he leads them. Father, we just pray that you would help them as they seek to minister to college students as well. And we think of our friends even tonight at Cherry Street and under the, the college ministry there, under the direction of Kevin Adams and just their faithfulness God, in both of those places to preach and teach your word, and we just ask that you would help them as they seek to do the same thing that we are doing, that they uh, would see fruit from it as well. Father, we're okay with revival. We want it. We're hungry for it, and we're so hungry for it that we're okay even if you bring it at the church down the street. But we're asking that you would do it at the church down the street as well as in our own place. So through this series, we pray that our hearts might be encouraged. Uh, that we might know better how to interact with those who hold differing beliefs. 
we'll be careful to praise you for all that's said and done here tonight. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, you know, normally in, in an introduction to a sermon, we're trying to set the stage for you. Uh, a lot of times I'll ask questions or share a story with you. But I think for the sake of the series that we're in, exploring different cults and world religions, for our introductions, primarily what I'm going to do over the next few weeks is try and give you a brief history of how uh, that particular cult or world religion has come into existence and kind of their leadership structure so you kind of know how they operate. And so when we talk about Mormons specifically, the, we're talking about the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, the LDS Church or Mormons. In fact, within the last two years, uh, the president of the Mormon Church issued a proclamation that they no longer want to be referred to as Mormons, but as uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, that will eat half of my sermon time if I refer to them that way, so I'm hoping that they will be charitable and kind to me and ex understand why I can't do that. Now, the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, or Mormons, as we're going to refer to them from now on, have always held the position that they alone represent true Christianity. The leadership of the church has contended that after the death of the last apostle, which would be the apostle Paul, true Christianity fell into complete apostasy, making restoration necessary. And so in 1820, Joseph Smith Jr. claimed to have a vision, and in that vision, God singled him out as the Lord's anointed prophet, and it was during that vision that he received the Book of Mormon. So in 1820, the Mormon churches started in upstate New York. In, or in 1830, the Mormon church is going to move to a place called Kirtland, Ohio, and begin to grow. Um, they're eventually pushed out of Ohio, and they move to Independence, Missouri in July of 1831. And they are effectively kicked out of Missouri. Literally, the governor issued an edict to kick them out to raise up the militia against them, and they moved to Nauvoo, Illinois in, 19, or in 1838. So in 1838, they moved to Nauvoo, Illinois. And it's there in Nauvoo, Illinois, that Joseph Smith actually is killed, and Brigham Young comes into power and leads the church to their final resting place in Salt Lake City, Utah in 1847. Now, you say, David, why does that matter? Well, um, it matters because they moved a lot and it traces their history and their development to eventually get to Salt Lake City. And the reason being that they continually had to move was due to the issue that many states took with cohabiting with multiple spouses. Um, we know this is polygamy. This is an issue early on in the Mormon church. Um, it's actually later repudiated um, and the church no longer holds to that. Um, the problem with that is, just like any other religious organization, there's been splintering of groups, and there's still a large portion of Mormons that effectively um, believe that as the pure version of Mormons, they are supposed to exist in polygamous relationships. But that's not what the official teaching of the Mormon church is any longer. So just want to be upfront about this. Uh, there are a lot of things that as you read uh, about Mormonism and you study Mormonism I, I, that 
are characterized by Mormons, but I want to, for the sake of our time together, I always want to try and put in front of you what they legitimately believe now. Now, they've changed their beliefs. Joseph Smith was not unapologetic about the fact that he believed in, in the practice of polygamy, but the church has changed over time. And there's multiple ways in which the church has changed. Probably most notably in the 1970s, uh, there was great pressure put on them by civil rights leaders to um, change their beliefs towards people of dark skin. Um, not just African Americans, but people of dark skin. And so the church is going to evolve over time in what they believe. But I want to, for the sake of our time together, try to give you the most charitable picture and the most honest picture of where the church has been and where it currently is today. Now, for their leadership structure, if we think about how are Mormons organized, how do they organize themselves? Well, they, their leadership structure consists of what is known as the first presidency, and that's the president of the Mormon church along with the first and second counselor. And then directly below them is what they call the Council of the Twelve Apostles. These are lifetime appointments where they're going to effectively serve on the Council of the Apostles. They all get paid the same amount of money, $120,000, each one of them, for their life That when they're appointed to that. And then underneath of them are two ruling bodies called the First Quorum of the Seventy. And then, this should come as no surprise to you, the Second Quorum of the Seventy. So... Those are the next two leadership structures, and then it breaks down into uh, regional areas of responsibility and on down until you get to an individual Mormon church. Now, effectively, if we, so we can all be on the same page, the first presidency and the council rule the Mormon church basically with unchallenged authority. So those 15 people, you think the president the first and second counselor, and then the council of the twelve, they are effectively ruling and making decisions about um, the church. And at some level, now, I, I, again, if you are here and you are a Mormon, and I misrepresent this, I hope you correct me, but for lack of comparison, the president of the Mormon church at some level functions almost like the Pope does in the Catholic Church in the fact that when he speaks, he's speaking for God. We refer to this as speaking ex cathedra. He's the, the voice of God. And so when he says how the Mormon Church is going to practice something, that's how it comes down. That's how it's to be followed. There's really no question. Now, I may consult with the first and second counselor and the Council of the Twelve, but when he speaks, that's the way the church is going to operate. Now, that kind of gives us an introduction and gives us um, where we're going to jump into. And so for the sake of tonight, what I've tried to do is I've tried to say, okay, there's a lot that we can do. In fact, if you are really interested in this, this is like really piques your interest. Walter Martin has written a great thick book called, I think it's called The Chaos of the Cults or it's something on cults, Walter Martin. And he wrote about 75, 80 pages on Mormonism. So I'm reading through this, and then I'm reading through Ron Rhodes' books on cults, studying about Mormonism. I'm like, there's no way we can cover all of this in 33 minutes. I don't know that we could, if we devoted the next 16 weeks of our lives to just studying Mormonism, that I can get through it all. So what I've tried to do is I've tried to give you three big launching points into understanding this cult and how you might engage with them. And I, just to be honest, 
think that these are three very significant doctrines when we talk about what it means to follow Christ that we need to compare and be able to engage with. And so tonight we're going to start with mankind. We read in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, God's estimation of man. Paul says this in verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is a key scripture. We talk with anybody who puts their faith and trust in Christ. This is where we point them. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What do Mormons believe about humanity? Well, going back to our first parents, Adam and Eve, Mormons teach that Adam and Eve, prior to sin entering into the world, are actually not mortal beings, but immortal beings. And prior to the fall, they're not mortal in any sense of the word. So they're not like you and me, which is completely contrary to Scripture. But for the sake of what Mormons believe, they're going to argue Adam and Eve are not mortal, they're immortal. And in fact... In a weird way, the fall of mankind, Adam and Eve consuming the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, is somewhat to be celebrated because the fact that they're immortal prior to the fall makes it impossible for them to have children. And in the Mormon religion, what is necessary is for human beings to create and uh, propagate more mortal beings that can eventually progress towards being God. So in a weird way, and I don't mean this uncharitably, but in a weird way, the fall almost becomes something to be celebrated because without the, the, the possibility for more mortal beings like you and me to be created, there's no hope of anyone ever achieving being God. So... It's also important to note at this point, in case you didn't pick it up in the last, that Mormons believe that one day all good Mormons will eventually be a god or godhead. Unlike Christianity, which teaches that all people are sinners at birth, at conception, this is how committed Christians are to original sin. Not only do we believe that you are born a sinner, we believe at the moment of conception you're a sinner. Like... In the womb, you're a sinner. And those few women in here who've carried children would probably amen at this point. Just some of the discomfort that some of you caused your parents. I'm sure they would affirm that point. But unlike Christians, unlike what the Bible teaches on the issue of original sin, Mormons don't believe Uh, in original sin. In fact, original sin is kind of something that comes later in life, which doesn't make it original. It makes it later in life sin. They believe that children are innocent when they're born and innately good with no propensity towards sin at all. In fact, until the age of eight, all children are declared innocent. So it's not until eight that a human being Become sinful. And Mormons believe that sin in humans is basically wrong judgment, a mistake, an imperfection, or an inadequacy. But certainly nothing that would condemn you to a life of complete separation from God, which is exactly the opposite of what the Bible teaches on this issue. The Bible teaches that all humans, from the moment that they're born, because of the sin of their first parents, Adam and Eve, 
are condemned to spend eternity separated from God if someone does not rectify their sinful condition. That they are born in a state of condemnation. And something has to make that right. So humanity, while created in the image of God, this is Genesis chapter 1. We talked about this a little bit on Sunday. This idea of being created in the image of God is not God-like in any way. In fact, nowhere in the scriptures will you find the pages of scripture arguing that one day you will become God or like God. In fact, if you remember, the sin that started all of this is the fact that Eve was tempted that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. Nowhere inside of scripture is God arguing that one day, if you just try hard enough or you're a good Mormon, you will be God. That's opposite. The Bible teaches that you and I are born sinners. Now, the struggle, right, through this whole series is going to be like, we're going to learn about all of these different cults, and we're going to learn about all these different religions, but what does this ultimately have to do with me? What is, how does this impact my life? How is this intensely practical? Why would we even do this other than to simply know what other people believe? Well, I, I guess I would ask you this. It's really easy to say, I believe these things, but in your heart of hearts, what do you really believe about humanity? Because it's going to impact the way that you interact with them. If you believe that all people are inherently good and are innocent and have no propensity towards sin, then realistically you have no reason to even be here tonight. But if you believe that mankind is guilty, condemned, and lost, and outside of the saving work of Christ can never hope to experience anything that would compare to eternal life, it's going to impact the way that you interact with the people around you, in your small groups, at your church. It's going to impact the way that you interact with people at your job, at school. How do you really view man? Mormons say, inherently good. And after eight, yeah, you struggle with sin. But if you're a good Mormon, you'll overcome all of that. Where do you land here? And what do you believe the goal of mankind is? is? Is the goal to merely be a good person? Some people grow up and they go to church their entire life and they are claiming to be Christ followers, but they honestly, by the way they live their life, they're trying to make themselves good in front of a holy God and it never works because you're good isn't ever going to be good enough because you sin and you fall short so we believe and see from the scriptures that man is a sinner and outside of somebody rescuing him will spend eternity separated from God forever so we've seen what Mormons believe about man. Now we need to turn our attention and see what do Mormons believe about Christ, Jesus Christ. Flip over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. 
and I, I'm going to try and make it my practice through this series, and you'll have to help me, not during the middle of the sermon, but if I fail to do this, tell me afterwards, it just gets chaotic if you're yelling at me while I'm preaching, and is inconsistent with how we normally <laughs> operate. I'm going to try and make it my practice to go to the scripture, read the scripture text, talk about what another cult or religion believes, and then talk about what this text says in response to that. So that's the form we're going to follow. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 5, says this, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation in taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is an essential text for understanding what the Bible teaches about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Mormons, when they approach the issue of Christ, believe that Jesus Christ was born or begotten by the Father, God the Father, and one of the Father's unnamed wives, and that Christ is the first spirit child. And further, Mormons believe that Christ, even though he kind of somewhat pre-existed, is not eternally God. And oh, by the way, he is also the spirit brother of Lucifer. So Christ and Lucifer are actually spirit brothers. To build further on this, Mormons reject the Holy Spirit's work in the birth of Jesus Christ. If we were to flip over and, and read in Luke, we would find something that's inconsistent, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But Mormons believe that Christ is born, and they get a little bit more specific now, and say he's born via an immortal or resurrected God, having sexual relations with Mary. So the father actually sleeps or has some sort of sexual union with Mary, nullifying the idea that Mary is a virgin when Christ is born. Now, understand this. One famous theologian said, imagine Christianity is a brick wall, and all the different bricks are blocks of doctrine and, and theology. If you pull one of those bricks out, you still have a wall. It just has a hole in it. Now, that may sound cool, but he goes on to say, so, for instance, the virgin birth of Christ. If you pull that brick out of the wall, you still have a wall. After my head stopped hurting, one of the things that you have to, and this, is, this was a guy who was an evangelical Christian at one point. He's now defected from the faith. But what he's arguing is essentially that doesn't matter. And friends, let me just tell you this tonight. Like, If you pull the virgin birth of Christ out of the wall of Christianity, you no longer have a wall. Because Christ must come completely separate from how humanity is conceived. Otherwise, he's just seed of man and seed of woman. So what does 
Christianity teach in regard to all of this? Well, Philippians chapter 2 tells us this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes on to describe who Jesus Christ is. He rejects the claim in these verses that Christ is somehow begotten and a spirit child. Rather, he says, Paul says this. Verse number six, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. So Paul makes two claims here. Not only is Jesus Christ God, but he is equal with God. So Paul is putting together the baseline argument for Jesus Christ being, as R.C. Sproul put it, truly man and truly God. And if he's truly God, he's equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Trinity. We're going to get to this. Trinitarian theology is essential to being an Orthodox Christian because we believe that God is one essence existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Here's where we're finding some conflict. Jesus is not a spirit child. He is Truly God. You say, David, prove it. Okay. Well, outside of this biblical text, which I think is pretty compelling, I'll give you two other biblical illustrations. Let's go to the first, the baptism of Jesus. We know that John freaks out when Jesus shows up as he's baptizing other people and tells John, baptize me. And John's like, no, I'm not doing it. And Jesus is like, no, you need to do it because my father said to do it. And so John, being obedient, baptizes Jesus. And in that moment, what happens? We know that the Spirit descends and God the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Second, we start with the baptism of Jesus. We've looked at this text. Let's consider the crucifixion of Christ. Christ is on the cross, and he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he gives up the spirit. And what happens? And when the, the Bible says he gives up his spirit, he's talking about he dies. In that moment, he's dead. And what happens is we read that basically an earthquake happens, and across town... In the temple, in the Holy of Holies, the veil is ripped from the top to the bottom. And what happens in that moment is a centurion guard looks up at Christ in light of all that's happening around him and confesses, truly, this man is the Son of God. So what I've tried to do in that illustration is give you Paul's voice speaking to this, an apostle I've given you the Father's voice declaring he's my son. And then I've given you eyewitness testimony. This must be the son of God. None of them are confessing, this is my beloved spirit child. You may chuckle at that, but no one's confessing that. I'll just point out this too. We look in this, this text, he says but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a 
bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul says that Christ humbles himself. If he's not God, he does not have to humble himself. To be humbled means to go lower, not up. So he's not growing up into Christ. He's humbling himself and taking on the form of a servant. Recognize this. When any cult tries to tell you that Jesus is a man, the biblical text would suggest completely otherwise, even in the act of him humbling himself. If he's not God, why does he have to humble himself? So the text is making the argument. And furthermore, let's go back to the claim that God the Father and Mary have some sort of sexual union. Luke 135 argues the opposite of this, that the Holy Spirit is actually overshadowing Mary and the, for the conception of Christ to take place. Now you say, David, why did you take us to Luke? I think just arguing from the biblical author is strong. But I specifically want to take you to what does the medical doctor say is happening? I'm going to be real honest with you. If Jess walks in the room tonight and tells me after service, I think I'm pregnant, I'm not going to ask one of you yahoos to confirm that for me. I'm going to go to the medical doctor because he's going to know. And Luke gives us the strongest testimony, and I think specifically so because he is a medical doctor. He can confirm that, nope, she didn't get pregnant the normal way. Something divine happened, and he tells us through the revelation of the Holy Spirit to us that the Holy Spirit is the one who is overshadowing Mary and the conception of Christ to take place. Now you say, again, David, great. I know, I know that, and I, I didn't know that about Mormons, but I know that about Christ. And I, I'm not really sure how this helps me. Well, I think functionally it helps us in this way. A lot of us claim to follow Christ, and a lot of us claim to know a lot about Christ, but when someone shows up at your doorstep and starts to question who Christ is, your inability to argue for God's deity or his essential God, being God, not Godness or God-like, but being God, is essential to how you're going to be able to interact with people. Furthermore, just on a practical level, you claim to follow Christ, and you claim that he's equal in deity with the Spirit and with the Father. We've got a real bad rash of Christians who are like, I'm all about what Jesus has to say, and I don't care about anything else that the Bible has to say. Just They call themselves red-letter Christians, just following what Christ says. Well, in the original manuscripts, there are no red letters. Just FYI, I get the concept, but it's inconsistent with what you believe about Christ. If you believe that Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man, that he's one of the persons that exists in the Trinity, that one essence of the Godhead, then what you're saying is not only am I going to submit myself to the person of Christ, but everything that God has to say, the whole package 
And he's communicated that to us in this word. So if you confess Christ as Lord, you're also confessing that what he says goes. John 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. I just ask you this gently and kindly. Do you live consistently with this? Christ is Lord. But they don't follow him. Truly God, truly man, don't listen. It's a dangerous place to be. So we've talked about man, we've talked about Christ, and now we turn our attention to the final doctrine and that's the issue of eternity flip over to john chapter 10 in in john chapter 10 we see jesus arguing for himself as the true shepherd refers to himself as a good shepherd and we'll pick up in verse 11 and read to verse 16 jesus says this i am the good shepherd good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he is not the shepherd. One who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the father knows me, even so I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is what Jesus is arguing. There's two camps. You're either in his flock or you're not in his flock. You're either a child of his or you're outside of his family. This is what Mormons believe. Mormons believe and teach that all people will one day end up in one of three kingdoms of glory. We'll start with the first one. Celestial kingdom is reserved for faithful Mormons and children who died before the age of eight. This level, this level is the only level in the celestial kingdoms of glory that allows for people to attain Godhead. So in this celestial kingdom, it is possible for you to be a God. Only to those who are good and faithful Mormons. How are you a good and faithful Mormon? You practice and follow all of good Mormons' teaching. Second kingdom is the terrestrial kingdom. Non-Mormons who live moral lives and for the less than valiant Mormons... And less than valiant Mormons are those who don't live up to their church's expectations or requirements. Notice what's taking place for you to attain a, the top tier, your good works. And the third level is the telestial kingdom. The great majority of people will actually end up here. Carnal and sinful people go here. And after a period of temporal suffering in hell, at some level they're purified and able to Enter into the celestial kingdom. John teaches the exact opposite of this. You either are in Christ and you're spending eternity with him. Or you're not in Christ and you'll spend eternity separated from him. No levels here. There's no temporary suffering. None of that. You're either a follower of Jesus or you're out. Separated for eternity from him. This is the scariest part about Mormonism. You say, David, why is it the scariest part? There's tons of stuff that Mormons and and Christians don't agree on. Because this will affect your eternal destiny. 
and this affects their eternal destiny. And the only application question we can ask at this point is, where will you spend eternity? Where will your friends spend eternity? Because according to John chapter 10, verse 16, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. They're either in the flock or they're out. This is terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. And the temptation for us tonight is to leave here thinking that Mormons are all wrong and that we, we've attacked them and we've solved the biggest problem. We've got the answers. Boom. Man. Christ. Eternity. Done. Finished. Beat them. Take that, Mormons. If you walk out of here with that attitude, you've missed the point completely. Two things that press my mind as we bring this to a close. One is this, that mankind will do whatever it takes to suppress the truth of the gospel. They will go to the nth degree to suppress the truth of the gospel. But this is honestly the most terrifying part of it. Second is, how can people who completely miss the point of the scriptures make us look like such lightweights when it comes to the area of missions? For people who know the truth, Mormons make Christians look like they're hiding it. Christianity has waned over the years, and Mormonism has exploded since World War II. People who are completely misguided. Some of you would lose your lunch. You'd pitch a fit from here all the way home, and then back again if we said at 18, hey, guess what? We purchased a plane ticket, and we're sending you to the four corners of the globe for two years of missions. You'd lose your mind. We've got friends. I had a friend of a kid that used to be in my small group. His, he's in Bolivia right now. He's more passionate about propagating a lie than we've ever been about propagating the truth. tore me up. I'm, I'm sitting there just reading this going, how can they believe this? How can they believe this? And I'm sitting there going, more passionate. More intense. There's no exceptions. You can defer your mission, but eventually you're going to go. And we would lose our minds if we had to spend two years in our going out of our house every day and telling the people in our blocks, around our house, that that was our job for two years. Which brings the question, do you really believe this? Is Christ all and in all in your life? Or is it just something that you do because it's Wednesday? And there's going to be free pizza afterwards. He beats the heck out of betting you for a chem final. Sure, we could have gone on a date, but I mean, we don't want people to think we're bad Christians. And all of us are tempted to be like, slow down. David, you're being crazy. Two years. Would you give two years of your life for a lie? 
say, no, I'm going to just use my life for a lie. But you won't even give a day to the truth to the person who sits next to you who's going to spend eternity separated from God. Let's pray.